Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, did what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the opening monologue. This is a podcast situation. Thank you for being here. My guest today is Megan Abbott. She is a past winner of the Edgar Award, uh, among other honors. She's a decorated novelist who uh, is able to combine plot-driven narrative with uh, real uh, literary sensibility. She's got skills, and I'm very pleased to have her here. Her latest novel, Dare Me, is due out in paperback later this month on August 27th, 2013. Uh, it has received all sorts of plaudits from the critics, and it looks like it might become a major motion picture. So keep your eye out for the paperback. Uh, that drops on August 27th, once again. But uh, before we get started, I would like to read some mail. I, uh, I got a lot of mail regarding episode 195, my conversation with Adele Waldman, the author of The Love Affairs of Nathaniel P. And uh, as I recall, we talked a lot about relationships and uh, that sort of thing. And it seems to have struck a chord with listeners both positively and negatively. 
I got a lot of tweets uh, and emails and Facebook messages from listeners about this uh, particular show, so I figured I would share a, a few of them with you. This first one uh, comes from a listener named Matt. He writes, Hey Brad, just wanted to shoot you a quick note about the Adele Waldman episode. Not to lean too much on the side of being, quote, nice for the sake of being nice, but I really enjoyed the discussion of masculinity and relationships. As a guy in his 20s, I've had that whole pregnancy complex and found what you were saying to be very much in line with my own reasoning, especially the part about not being capable of just easily having that kind of quote-unquote fun. Anyway, it was my favorite episode I've heard so far. Hope all is well out there. Best, Matt. And when he talks about the pregnancy thing, it's something I said during this show, during the uh, conversation with Adele, about how when I was dating, you know, back in my younger years, how I was paranoid that I was going to get uh, girls pregnant. It's like a paranoia that I think a lot of guys have when they're dating and uh, they don't talk about. So clearly uh, Matt's, you know, in agreement with me there. And uh, then another listener named Juliet writes, Hi Brad, I really appreciate the conversation you had with Adele Waldman about gender dynamics. It was really nice to hear two people discussing their thoughts about male and female relationships while simultaneously considering their own inner bullshit detectors as well as potential biases, judgments, and personal feelings they or failings they might hold. I especially liked what you had to say about people of either gender thinking of themselves as being on the same team. Because that shit really pisses me off. But then I started thinking about quote other team or other quote teams that I consider myself to be a part of, ones that don't have anything to do with common interests, like writing. These teams are populations who have gone through similar struggles, so maybe I can understand that team way of thinking after all, to an extent. I'm not proposing any answers or suggestions here, just thanks for being so open and honest and thoughtful on, uh, on your show, and thanks for giving me some cause to think. XO, Juliet. And then finally, uh, Max Millwood, the program's most uh, devoted and passionate critic, uh, has some thoughts. He sends me a full critique of every episode. Lengthy critique, as many of you know. And uh, his, uh, his feelings on the Adele Waldman episode veered uh, more toward the negative. Uh, Dear Brad, he writes, First, the monologue was a mistake. Reading a poem by another writer is tacky. It leaves a bad taste in listeners' mouths whenever you break the unspoken pact between you and your audience of not bringing actual literature into your program and not outright judging literature, either good or bad. Your program has a good track record with this issue, so it was unfortunate to see you succumb to an easy exit for the show's monologue. And uh, he's referring to a, a poem that I read by Michael Earl Craig, uh, who I really like. Uh, and then as for my conversation with Adele, uh, Max says, At first we thought Waldman would be chiefly responsible for this show's meandering messiness. Early on in the interview, she, along with every other college student who just discovered naturalism, was talking about how she wanted to make her characters real and complex. But soon we realized that it was you, Brad, who was driving the interview into the ground. <laughs> After saying repeatedly, 
on past episodes that you want to devote less time to talking about feminism, sexism, sexism, and misogyny, you then proceeded to devote the entire 195th episode to these topics. How should men be? Is that really what you asked for this show? I don't know what else to tell you at this point for months. I've been saying that your obsession, your, your weird agenda, your conscience smearing when it comes to sexism is so abundant that I, for the first time, wanted to turn this episode off. Did you grope someone in high school or something? What are you repenting from? Why do you continue to dedicate large percentages of your show to one social sub-theme? It's gotten weird, Brad, like the paranoid obsessions in a schizo's head. (laughs) With all the plentiful topics in the literary industry and literature itself, the fact that you pigeonhole yourself to one tired subject is bad podcasting. You're so much better than this awful habit. I think you think this was an adventurous, wild show, but it was the exact opposite. Whatever. I'll see you next time. Sincerely, Max. So, uh, there you have it, folks. That's some feedback on episode 195. And uh, I appreciate it. If anyone out there wants to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And you can also tweet at me, at otherpeoplepod. Uh, To answer Max's question in particular about uh, why I I have such an interest in these particular uh, areas lately. And I've talked about this before, but I think... Uh, it's twofold. One, I think it comes from reading a lot about this stuff online. And then two, I think it comes from uh, having a daughter, being a parent. So for number one, uh, you know, over the years, over the past, you know, however many years, I've continually uh, noticed in my social media feed and elsewhere, uh, a lot of women, many of them writers, issuing complaints and writing essays about feminism and women's issues and discrimination uh, in publishing and elsewhere and, and feeling like maybe I was out of touch or maybe, uh, you know, it started to make me feel like I wasn't understanding something because there was a lot of noise happening in this particular realm and, uh, it didn't make complete sense to me. And then I started to worry that maybe I was complicit in it via my ignorance. And then secondly, uh, you know, I'm seeing things through the lens of uh, parenthood and trying to make sure that I have some degree of understanding of what it is to be female because I'm now charged with the responsibility of raising one. I've been over this. You know, I've talked about this. And you know what? I understand the criticism. I do think I've talked about this enough, and I don't want to talk about it much anymore. Uh, But with Adele, I don't think that the episode was really about uh, feminism or misogyny centrally, you know, I don't, I don't feel like that was the core of the episode and I don't feel like it was necessarily a repetition to me. uh, We were talking about relationships, which is different and specifically, you know, like male, female relationships and that whole dynamic, because that's what uh, Adele's novel is about. That's the big theme. So it made sense to go there and it felt germane to, uh, to talk in those areas. And and frankly, I wanted to pick her brain because she had spent years writing this novel and had done a lot of deep diving uh, in that realm. 
And then lastly, uh, I want to, uh, I do want to confess that yes, I did grope, uh, some girls in high school, or at least I tried to. It never really went very well, but, uh, I gave it my all. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is Megan Abbott. Her latest novel, Dare Me, is out in paperback from Reagan Arthur and Back Bay Books on August 27th. Keep an eye out for it. Uh, it involves cheerleaders and crime and intrigue, uh, among other things. And it's one of those books that pretty much everybody loved. So here we go, folks. This is my conversation with Megan Abbott, the author of the novel, Dare Me. I'm in Forest Hills, Queens, New York, um, home perhaps most famous um, because it's where the Ramones grew up. So that's its probably biggest claim to fame. Now, are there like landmarks and like signs? So, you know, I, I feel like in, in, I don't know, I've been to certain cities where they do a really good job of like telling you where so-and-so lived and like this was once the apartment of a famous artist. Like, is Joey Ramone's like house like marked or anything like that? No, it's terrible. They do a terrible job of it. Nobody ever believes me. But I actually every day walk by the school where they used to hang out apparently afterwards and throw spitballs at people and stuff. And it seems like there should be a sign, but I, I you know, I don't know. There's, you know, people like to keep it on the down low here, I suppose. No, see, I think it's like a point of civic pride, you know, and I think it's good to like promote, you know, those kinds of things. It's like, uh, What's the word? I don't know what it is. It's good for the culture. It makes people feel good, I think. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's quite a claim to fame. I mean, it's a pretty, as far as Queens goes, it's not the most interesting Queens neighborhoods. You know, we have the tennis stadium um, where where the U.S. Open used to be. But other than that, there's not a lot going for it. So to me, anytime someone comes, I say, the Ramones, here, right here. (laughs) And and hey, one day it'll be like, hey, Megan Abbott used to (laughs) This is where she wrote her masterpieces. That's right. This is where she walked by every day to talk about the Ramones to everyone listens. So. No, but you seem to have carved out uh, a great career in publishing for yourself. Like you're writing books that I think have um, that kind of like desired crossover appeal that's really hard to get at where you have like, you know, you get really good critical reception and you have this literary street cred and your books get credit for being um, intelligent and well-plotted and sophisticated but at the same time um, they seem to have popular appeal and also have some cinematic qualities that translate to the silver screen. Like, 
Do you know what I'm saying? Like, is that something you, you consciously went for? Or is it just kind of an accident of your sensibility and good luck or whatever? It is definitely, thank you. Um, it is sort of definitely an, an accident, I suppose. You know, I mean, I, nothing's really an accident. I mean, obviously, I try to do do a bunch of those things, but a lot of it, some of it is, is luck in publishing, of course, um, and getting lucky enough to find the right people. But the the, I guess the sort of mix of the sort of, you know, literary and, you know, and sort of commercial or popular stuff is probably because I've just, I and the movie part is I grew up loving movies and love story and I love plot. Um, so that, you know, sort of the the relationship between the, the, the book and the reader has always been the most important part to me, that sort of whisper in the ear element. So that's what I always try to keep at the forefront when I'm writing is, you know, who I'm telling the story to. Do you have like a single reader in mind or are you one of those people who had, like you're writing to your husband or you're writing to your best friend or? No, I'm not. And, and some people say, oh, I write for myself. I don't do that <laughs> I guess, you know, I guess the kind of hungry ear, you know, I always loved those books that felt very much like confessions or secrets. Um, so I guess it's sort of the, the person who, who really wants to know, you know, what happens next? What you know, dark places are we going to go? And I, that's the person I imagine, but they're not embodied in any way. There's a few people I try not to think about when they write. But, and who, who are they? Who are they? Um, like my parents. Or, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but it's always a little uncomfortable. Um, but they've gotten used to it, and I'm trying. <laughs> well, no, but you do. I mean, I think every writer goes through that, and it's it depends. I mean, sometimes people are writing intensely personal things, or they're revealing secrets about their life that their parents might not necessarily uh, know or understand completely. And then there are other people who are working, um, you know, maybe further away from themselves, or they have, you know, different... Uh, Layers, you know, there's more layering between them and the work itself, or what's happening in the plot. But at the same time, what's happening in the plot might be sexual or like hyper violent, <laughs> you know, whatever the case may be. And you do have to shut that off. Like, uh, it's something you have to, I think, be kind of fierce about because if you go into it afraid of what mom and dad are going to think, then you, I think you're kind of just cooked from the beginning. You know, you can't do that. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a death of writing, you know, in, 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 in many ways, you know, you just, uh, you know, cause it's sort of, it's so self-revealing no matter what you're writing, even if you think it's really separate from your life because it, you know, superficially is, it's always really about some weird aspect of yourself, um, that you're trying to sort of put these veils over. And so if you're, if you think about it too much, then, you know, you would never show any of it and the books wouldn't feel real or alive. You know, that I always love when I read a lot of books by the same author, when I start to see some of their um, obsessions or compulsions recur, you know, some people hate that, you know, and Philip Ross talking about older men and younger women again. But, you know, I, that's what, when you, you feel like you know the author that way when you see the things that just keep recurring. And I kind of love that secret insight into the author head. Okay, see, that, that makes me feel good. Like, I will, I will uh, take, that, you know, take that one step further and say that when a writer really gets his hooks into me or she really gets her hooks into me, I not only like to read everything that they've written, but I like to read it uh, in chronological order. 
the completest. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I, I want to get, but I want to get like the, I, you know, to me, what's almost more interesting than the books themselves is like the author's like uh, subtext, <laughs> like the, yes. actual, yes. the actual life story. And I like to read it in order because then it's like, it functions more as like biography for me, you know? Yes. No, that's really true uh, because then you, you sort of sometimes see it in its rawest form in the early book, um, but it's not as thought through or complex. And so you sort of, it's interesting to see the evolution of it. And then I, I love to read, it sounds like you do too, author biographies of authors. And, and then you start to fill in, you know, the in-betweens a little bit with what you might know. Do you read author biographies or do uh, you avoid them? No, I love them. Oh. I, I, I honestly think I like them maybe better than the books themselves. Like the books themselves, <laughs> like the fiction is is wonderful. It has to be in order for me to want to read all of it. But um like there's something so deeply satisfying of getting the full picture of the art and then the artist who created it. And I mean, look at me, I'm doing this podcast. I like to talk about people or I like to talk with people and find out what makes them tick and how they actually went through the creative process. Like that's equally interesting to me. Absolutely. And some, you know, sometimes, sometimes I like the biographies better than the author. It's not necessarily a fault of the author. Like Jack Kerouac is a writer. I like, I'm not insane about it. I was when I was 15, you know, and it's not a criticism of him, but I love to read biographies about him and about the beats, you know. So that's sort of an example of, of, of sort of his experience being somehow, you know, um, you know, even more significant to me than just the books themselves. And then some authors, like, I just, uh, I read the Raymond Carver biography that came out a few years ago. And that you just want, you just love them in concert because you feel like you understand the, the story so much better knowing the life right exactly exactly like i uh i I mean both of those guys definitely resonated with me and it's funny how you know an author comes to you at a certain time in your life and uh, that means so much you know timing means so Mm. much in terms of when you when you pick up kerouac at 15 16 17 18 it's a completely different experience than when you pick him up at say you know, 35 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I read, I had Joyce Johnson on this program a while back oh. and she just wrote a, you know, a pretty, pretty great biography of him. And, you know, one of the functions of reading these literary biographies is that in addition to kind of rounding out the art itself and giving you a deeper understanding of it is that, you know, from a writerly perspective, I find it helpful to take them down off of the mental pedestal that I often build for them. You know, mm-hmm. like, when you yes. when you read about like the nitty gritty of their lives and you see that they suffered and struggled much as you are suffering and struggling in whatever mm-hmm. you know particular context it happens to you know uh, be current like it, it I find comfort in that you know especially creatively absolutely and the sort of the, the sort of strategies they figure out or or don't about how to how to keep writing and how to keep producing one of the things i loved in the carver biography is how his life for so long because he was so poor um you know was so tumultuous and he had to keep the writing space as as even and steady as possible you know no matter what was going on in his life what chaos he just would not let anybody near him during the writing time same time every day you know and so those kind of details are just gold you know they're just fascinating you know that that he had sort of figured out how to make it work for himself you know and getting sober too in his case but you know that's the thing too is that like that the level of chaos that some of these people um were able to endure particularly like you know chemically uh, 
and, and at the same time produce is sort of shocking and also kind of like it sort of shames me because like I'm not dealing with like a massive full-blown alcoholism like, you know <laughs> yeah. extremely dire poverty and yet I find myself like struggling to produce and and you know do as much as they've done and so you know it's fascinating to see and I think for some people it's like their only you know bedrock of sanity like that time is holy for precisely that reason you know Right. They need it more somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I just read the Richard Yates one, too. And, and he just, that was very sad. And his, <laughs> I mean, and he, you know, struggling with both mental illness and alcohol. But you just like the stamina, the endurance. I, I, I just feel like I live such a pedestrian bourgeois life when I compare myself alongside uh, those guys. Um, but it, 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 it's not a it's, you know, I'm glad that my life. Not like that, but but there is still a kind of glamour in it. I mean, I think I'll always glamorize writers. Yeah, well, no, me too. And like the other thing too is that like rock stars, I think anybody who abuses substance like really heavily and yet like makes like really great, brilliant art. Um, one of the things that always makes me feel good is that it makes me feel healthy because mm-hmm. you know I've definitely dabbled in my life, and you know I've you know I did my time or whatever as like a college student, but nothing too too crazy mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm looking at like keith richards or i'm looking at these guys and i'm like god i'm i'm gonna do great i mean they're they made it to 70 like knock on wood but you know. <laughs> yeah exactly you know? there's no fear there <laughs> right, exactly so um you know let's talk a little bit about uh your childhood which you alluded to uh with respect to the movies and then with respect to some of these authors that influenced you at a young age and uh, and you also alluded to your parents earlier and uh, I think I read that your folks were both academics and writers. Is that correct? Yes, they're both writers. Uh, my dad is a political theorist, and my mom writes fiction. So it was a book-loving household from, from the start. It was just the thing we did. We all read all the time, my brother as well. So it was sort of, it was always, you know, it was a great gift that they gave me, but they didn't know that they were giving me because I assume that everybody spent all their time at the library, you know, and just uh, consuming uh, stories. So, and you, <clears throat> you said you had just one brother? Yes, a, a brother who's um, who's a book fanatic, but he's actually a, a criminal prosecutor, which is of great help to me because I, I all my books involve crime. So he is my go-to guy for um, for weird weird crime stories and and procedural stuff. Oh my god, it's like perfect. He's like your perfect consultant. I know, I know. It's as if he did it just for me, and yet, <laughs> yet he, he will assure me he did not. <laughs> so, and you grew up in Michigan. Right, suburban Detroit, just outside of Detroit. Okay, uh, Detroit's went through some rough times. I mean, has it yes. has it changed? I mean, do you go back there and say to yourself, like, my God, what happened, or is it? Well, I grew up in many. I mean, it, it seems bad to people now, obviously, you know, being bankrupt and so forth, which is really bad. But I, when I grew up, it was sort of in its most. In, I mean, now infrastructure, it's it's its most dire, but it was um, it was a much more frightening place uh, and hopeless place when I was a little kid uh, because it was sort of, you know, after the the riots and the economic, economic collapse there and um, and then the suburbs, there was a very, very volatile relationship between the suburbs and the city and 
and my my dad worked and still works in the city, so we I always loved it, but it was definitely sort of part of the you know there was a definite us versus them feeling between the two and and now that's really changed, and now you there is this sense i mean it, it's sort of in the face of you know utter bleakness of excitement when I go there because there's a lot of new stuff happening um because somehow the like the, the clearing of the the city has has sort of sparked all this sort of DIY, you know, DIY stuff and, you know, and music and people, you know, growing, making farms on the prairie land where buildings used to be. So there is something kind of exciting about it. It's energizing when I go back. Well, you know, that's interesting that you say, because I mean, and I, I get it because it's, a, it's, it's like, you don't want to uh, dance at a funeral. Do you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. there's, there's something really bleak about the, um, you know what's happened there but at the same time when you're in that kind of environment where things have really kind of bottomed out mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of opportunity for experimentation and i don't know new modes of living and cost of living has gone down and you do i've been reading bits and pieces about detroit and about like the art scene there and about people like just mm-hmm. like commandeering buildings and like turning them into like you know <laughs> yeah. like gallery spaces or whatever it is you know so hopefully it regenerates yeah, I hope so. And it was always, I was always, uh, it was always, you know, very, I was very physically, we lived very close to the city and, and but it, there was a sort of sharp dividing line. And I, I wrote a story about this once because it, uh, for this collection called Detroit Noir. And it was, I just had the sense that as a suburbanite, that the sort of expectation was to write about Detroit as being this terrifying place. But to me as a kid, in, in you know this is romanticization for sure, but uh, the suburbs were really boring, and I couldn't wait to get out of them. And I I was filled with contempt for them. <laughs> now I don't feel that way, but for most of my childhood. But so Detroit seemed very glamorous and exciting and strange and exotic, and I always wanted to go there as a teenager, you know, to explore. And and I think that that was probably a source of inspiration. For me, as a as a as a as a young kid, um, reading those author biographies and sort of imagining what was out that possibly out there in the big big wide world. Well, yeah, and it's like you know you do have a um, you know a, a, a heavy lean into crime and noir and all that stuff. And so, where like, can you trace that? You know, if you're coming from like the the sort of pristine Detroit suburbs, or I don't know mm-hmm. how pristine they were, but pretty, I'm, yeah, pretty. I'm assuming they're like they're similar to the the Midwestern suburbs I grew up in, where there's like mm-hmm. lawns and grills, yeah. and, mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, it, you know, I guess there's something underlying all of that that's sort of noirish that might not be apparent at first blush, but you know, what else was there in your life that drew you into like that mode of thinking creatively? Yeah, it's always the sort of mystery because I think there is a sort of sinister quality to the suburbs, but I'm sure I wouldn't have known it then because it was, you know, all I knew. But I, I, I think it probably came from the movies, well, old movies as a kid. This is the, the earliest I can trace it to, which is that I really developed a fixation with, with gangster movies early on. <laughs> um, and I just, I didn't, and I, I always joke with my parents, because I didn't know they these weren't new movies. They used to take me, to, there was a revival house, and we used to go and see Public Enemy and Scarface and Roaring Twenties and 
I just love Jenny Cagney. And there was just something about the energy of them. And and talk about tight storytelling. You know, it would be like 70-minute long movies. And, you know, it would be the rise and fall of, of an American uh, icon, you know. Um, and I just loved it. I loved all the bootleg alcohol and, and the flappers and, you know, all this sort of, all the energy of it, I think. And so that's... I think started me on a fascination with with crime or the the criminal and and that sort of then segued into an obsession with true crime which um which sort of you know everything went from there somehow so I think I, I mean obviously it probably comes something before that that I have repressed but it's the earliest I can remember well you know it's funny cuz like I think about my suburban youth and I think about the uh the noirish aspects of the suburbs and I think mm-hmm. You know, there there are some like legitimately heavy, dark things that happen uh, in you know places that aren't the inner city. You know, right, right. And you know, and I, I can recall certain incidents or like there were some heavy tragedies or whatever that were like you know mm-hmm. around when I was a kid that sort of stick to you because they're so yeah. anomalous. But I think too, in retrospect, that because you live in these places that have this polish to them, and you know, there's a lot of um, outward happiness and there's a lot of surface level perfection and like the lawn looks nice and there's cars in the driveway and the dad's mowing the lawn. And then, you know, as you grow up and you start to come to understand at least on some level that human dysfunction, uh, you know, lives everywhere, uh, because it's happening in that sort of surface level, um, amid that sort of surface level nicety, I think it makes it seem more noirish. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I could not agree more. I think that, that's beautifully put because there is this sense that everything everything has to be hidden um, in the suburbs that, that isn't exactly as it should be, you know, so we're always ashamed of something in the suburbs, you know, because, uh, you know, no one really fits those ideals at all. Uh, so there's this, you know, the, I think that, you know, it's a sense of shame and hiding and guilt. It's sort of a permanent state, I would say, you know, and so, you know, that then you, you know, when you sort of, when I visit them now, I sort of see that heavy in the air and it lends this kind of exoticism and glamour to it. It becomes like blue velvet and you think, <laughs> what's really going I remember when I saw that movie um, when I was in college I, uh, and I thought, that's it. That explains everything because, you know, it's just like, it's just like peel back one layer and you have all the sort of dark emotions, urges and, and traumas of life just there. There, but they have to be hidden all the time. So everything feels hypercharged and hyper emotional for that reason because you're not supposed to show emotion. Well, right. And now you live in New York City and I live in Los Angeles, and like you walk <laughs> out the door and it's just like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's the stench of humanity all the time. <laughs> I'm like, just take me to the freaking suburbs so I can like chill out in somebody's lawn. You know? <laughs> I know. I want to go to the mall. Right. You know? <laughs> I just want an orange Julius and some peace. Oh my gosh, I so miss the orange Julius. I almost put that in every book, and then people tell me it's too old now to talk about. So. No, nobody except Brad Listy knows what an orange Julius is. Oh my god. So, um, okay, so bookish childhood, unusual fixation on like old timey movies. So, like gangster mm-hmm. movies, I'm assuming film noir. Yes, that came after. Yeah, definitely after okay. that. Was so, big. like Barbara Stanwyck, Venetian blinds, and mm-hmm. cigarette smoke was like your thing. 
absolutely. You know, it was that whole sort of moody, you know, we're all going down kind of feel, you know, it just, <laughs> I just wanted to be a part of that. And of course it was sort of a genre where women were real, real badasses and really uh, exciting to me. Um, and that, that was pretty great too, to see, you know, cause this, this would be like the, late seventies or early eighties when he was like Charlie's Angels and Love Boat and these were the women I was seeing, you know, on on T V and uh not that, you know, Charlie's Angels can't kick ass in their own way, but there was something about seeing Barbara Stanwyck, um, you know, with a gun that just felt far more powerful, I think. I get that. Yeah, she was great, you know, and like I remember like uh I took a film noir class in college, but like Gilda, is that film noir? Mm, Gilda, yes, definitely. Yeah, like, that's totally. a real perverse movie. Yeah, yeah, that's a great film. And like, I really, you know, the double indemnity. And then um, there's one called like, was it called, not U-Turn, that was an Oliver Stone film, but there was one called like Dead End or... God. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, There is one called Dead End, but that's probably... Are you thinking... Um, not sure which one you're thinking of. They're, they all have the title then, but right, right, right. But there's well, I don't know. I just remember really like that particular genre. Are you thinking of Detour? Detour. That is the one. I'm yes. Of. Oh God, that is so dark and strange. Yeah, it's a great film, and I really like film noir as a genre, as a movement in American film because uh, it's really distinct, and those movies hold up so well. Like I think. Yeah. You know, in in a way that like maybe not a lot of films do over time. You know, it's just a lot of fun. It's funny that you came to that so young. You know, your parent yeah. did your parents really push that on you, or is it like you got one taste and you were like, "This is me." I, you know, they didn't push it on me. I think in some ways they were sort of befuddled by, by it and sort of de- delighted. You know, uh, you know, they didn't seem to be bothered by it. And uh, I think they were probably glad that I just glad that you know, like with anyone, these kids just glad that they're interested in something. You know, and they're off the streets. <laughs> so, right, right. You know, and it, and it it must be interesting to you being in Los Angeles because I I wasn't didn't go to Los Angeles for the first time until I was in my late twenties. And you watch those movies, and so many of them are set there and they you know sunset boulevard and double identity and it, and that became the, the sort of dream place for me would be you know that la is the place where you know murder for hire behind the doors you know desire gone wrong and you know you see all those street names and it doesn't even feel like a real place i mean how did you end up there just graduate school and mm-hmm. you know, like an accident essentially like i still feel like i'm living here by accident it's been like 13 years now <laughs> um you know that's you know it's interesting because I think there's a connection between what we were talking about earlier with the juxtaposition of noir and the suburbs and the, um, you know, the whole crime fiction, um, you know, how much crime fiction is set in Los Angeles and what a Mm -hmm. a tradition there is of, you know, those kinds of stories taking place here. I think part, part of that is just the fact that the movies were shot here, but I think that when you talk about surface level perfection and the strange, like, you know, non weather and like there's not even any mm-hmm. wind, and it's like you live on a sound stage and, you know, it's always beautiful and there's all this glitz and glamour, but underlying that, there's a whole hell of a lot of crazy and there's mm-hmm. a lot of menace, you know, and it's this big, beastly place and it's a really easy city in which to disappear. Um, Absolutely. And it's a place where people always reinvent themselves and identity is really slippery because it's a place you're allowed to do that more than any other place. Take right. a new name, take a take a different past. Yeah. I don't know. It's like I, I, sort, I definitely feel that because like there can be times where I'm like, my God, it's so beautiful here. You know, you can. <laughs> and it's, it happens in pockets, you know, in these pockets. Um, 
are tend to be like buttressed right up against like pockets of like ugliness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. In, like Los Angeles, there's no sense to like the the way it's laid out. So you'll be like one minute like staring up at the hills or out at the ocean or whatever, and be, just be like, my God, it's magnificent, and then. The next minute, you know, there's just somebody like lying in the street, or you're just like, <laughs> right? You know. No, it's extreme everywhere, and, I, and one of the reasons is that that you know people have traced noir to sort of L.A. is it's also it's at the end of the country, so it's sort of it's the end of the frontier. It's sort of the last place, the terminus, and there's that famous Raymond Chandler, um, I think, phrase where he talks, you know, he talks about it being the edge of nothing, and you really have this sense that this is it. This is as far as you can go. Uh, which I think adds to this sort of big, sort of romantic and terrifying grandeur to it. Yeah, like I always like I always call it like the city, like at the. I feel like it's like the city at the bottom of the hill until like which everything sort of slides. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I just kind of like tumbled down into here or something and like wound up here. But um, I want to talk to you a little bit more about uh, your, you know, how you came to writing as a young person. Like I've sort of got like the the groundwork done in terms mm-hmm. of like the kinds of stories and films that were exciting to you as a young person. But like, how early was it that you had an inkling that you were going to write stories? I, I, you know, I wrote a lot as a kid, uh, but I never thought I would be a writer. Um, I thought I didn't think. I guess because part of you know reading all those writer biographies. It, you know, Fitzgeralds, uh, you know, I, I just didn't think it was something one could really be, despite the fact that my parents were writers. But they, they weren't, you know, they weren't novelists. And it just, uh, so I really, I kind of backed into it. I didn't want to sort of own it or admit that I wanted to be one until really late, until I was in graduate school. I intended to teach um, literature. And, um, and then I just, uh, I was working on my dissertation, which was on hard-boiled fiction, film noir, of course. And um, I just read a bunch of books all at once, um, written in the 30s and 40s, um, all noir. And I just started writing this novel on the side. And that and I didn't think it would really become anything. So I really fell back asward into the whole thing, I admit. Um, clearly, I went into all along. I just didn't have the guts. Um and somehow, at some point, I just developed the guts. Would you know why? I mean, was it some sort of gradual thing, or did you have like a moment where you kind of like stuck your sword in the ground and said, "I'm doing this. Like, I'm going to have the guts." <laughs> well, you know, probably if I hadn't had, uh, I had a little bit of early luck getting an agent to be businessy about it. And if I hadn't, I might never have done it again. You know, but but you know, when you write your dissertation, all you're doing is staring at the computer screen all day doing really sort of complex theoretical argument and so the 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 fiction became this relief and maybe in some way I recognized that that relief was really exciting and awesome and I should do something with it you know because I'd never felt it before you know so I, I you know I think and then luckily just got a little boost early on that said, you know what, maybe this this could happen. Um, maybe you could do something with this. And then it became compulsive. Then I couldn't stop. I literally couldn't stop. I still can't stop. Okay, so let's talk about this little boost. What do you mean like by the lucky break with the agent? I, you know, I didn't know how it worked. No one told me, and I sent a query. You know, they, you know, they told you if you need to. I didn't even know you need an agent to sell. I didn't even know how you sold a book because in academics, you send, you can send it straight to an editor, but you can't, you know. And so I was told you have to get an agent, and I sent a 
query letter to an agent and and he and he agreed to look at the manuscript which you know now I just total blind luck. Uh, I bought, you know, the, the book, you know, agents, your guide to agents, <laughs> literary agents. And I picked the first name and it was just one of those happenstance lucky things. Nothing has been that lucky for me since in publishing, by the way, but that, that was, um, so wait, like the first agent you queried signed you? He eventually signed me. He didn't sign me right away. He, in fact, when he read the manuscript, he said, it's not ready yet. You need to keep working on it. But that, that was sort of like, oh, now we're in it together. <laughs> you know, I had a compadre and, uh, and I had a, a focus, you know, so I knew it wasn't, you know, that there was sort of a purpose to this. Um, so, so that sort of gave me that, that sort of fire. And it ended up having to rewrite a lot of times, even before he signed me and before, certainly before it went out to editors. But um, but it just gave me just that sort of whiff of, you know, the possibility of this. That's all you need. And then, like, you're hanging onto his leg, like, okay. Yeah, We're friends, right? We're friends. Remember me? Remember me? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's amazing just how little hope. Is is plenty is plenty enough hope for an aspiring writer? Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, like, so true. The tiniest like little glimmer of sunlight, and we're like, yes. You know? <laughs> so true. It's like even if even now, if I'm feeling particularly bad, and you know, like one little comment on Twitter, someone <laughs> will say, "All right, I'm not going to hang it up." Right, right. Yeah. I, yeah. So, you know, and and then by and conversely, like one like negative tweet or like shitty oh, review, and they God. can be like, you know, it's hard. It's hard to manage all that. I think it. It is. You know, so there's no hiding from it now either. You know, I mean, I don't read reviews. Uh, after my first book, I I just sort of stopped because I was fixating on them so much. But now, now you can't avoid them. You can you can choose not to read them, but people will will tweet about them or tell you know. So there is you know, with the way social media is, you will hear what people say no matter yeah. what. Like you're like that. You know, one of your friends comes up and just tells you something awful someone said about you. Yeah, you're like, yeah, you're like, yeah. Thank thank you so much for keeping me in. <laughs> right. Yeah. Can always count on you. <laughs> right. Right. So okay. So we're missing like a window. Like you went mm-hmm. to the University of Michigan, mm-hmm. and you studied. Yes, I so I studied English lit there, and um, did you, you go? Know, did you go crazy? You don't seem like the kind of person who went crazy in college. Were you pretty studious? I, yeah, it was, it was really studious. I had you know I had my Sylvia Plath phase, okay. <laughs> you know, as every self-respecting college girl. That you know, but I you know I I wrote a lot of you know angsty poetry, you know, about you know bad boyfriends and you know etc but um do you, but you, no, do you still I'm, have any of that on hand if you'd like to read oh some oh my gosh i tell you i would be so afraid to look at them now because i, I would have to relive those bad boyfriend experiences <laughs> um, but but it was sort of a license i mean i think she was the barbara stanwick of writers <laughs> you know she was so um aggressive and angry and uh i was so glad to to have that you know spent a lot of time, you know, the University of Michigan is a big school, spent a lot of time wasted with frat boys, and, you know, I had to sort of push through that and come out the stronger for it, so. You ran the gauntlet of frat boys. <laughs> well, I, something like, that sounds really, really creepy, but yeah. <laughs> It would be a good noir tale, but <laughs> I was pic- I was picturing more like some sort of like football obstacle course, but you know. Yes, no, that, I mean, yes, that's right, that's right. Um, okay, and so like cheerleading because that mm-hmm. figures into uh, your latest mm-hmm. book that's now what coming out in paperback, and mm-hmm. 
um, you know, like that whole high school scene, like, were you a cheerleader? Were you involved? No, you were yeah. not. So this no. is all, this is all like an outsider's perspective. This isn't something you live through. No, I was the really the opposite. I was the, you know, editor of the high school paper girl. Um, and, you know, it was not my thing at all. I, I But in fact, uh, when I was a teenager, cheerleading was very different. Or you know, it was very, um, it was really the, the most popular girls would, would wave pom-poms and dance a little and, and from the sidelines. And that's what, that's what it was. Um, but now it's really frightening and terrifying sport. Um, and I, I learned that kind of by accident, um, watching, watching it on YouTube of all places. Um, when I saw what it had become, I became sort of fixated on, in fact, because it was so not my high school experience in many ways, but also in, um, I guess it goes back to what you were saying about the suburbs and the the sort of perception we have of the way people live there and what goes on beneath it. Because the cheerleader, I guess she interests me because she's supposed to be so perfect and pert and the American ideal, so sunny, so happy. And then when I started to watch at these, what some of these stunts and these sort of hardcore things that these girls do, it started to speak to, I guess, this inner ferocity and this sort of, you know, so that contrast, I guess, uh, is really what drew me to the subject. Well, there you go. Yeah. Like that just, that, that's exactly like what we were talking about where like, uh, that, like the outward smile on the pom pom and then underneath it all is just like anger. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, and girl rage is, you know, we're still really uncomfortable by it in general. I know I am, and I am a girl, or, or you know, and, and after a fashion. So it's, um, it was a sort of great, you know, because you can get away with a lot if you look like a cheerleader. Yeah. Well, I just remember in high school, you know, because I had a pretty traditional, uh, you know, in some ways kind of old-fashioned high school experience when I look back on it. I went to high school in Indiana because we moved there mm. uh, after growing up the first half of my childhood in Wisconsin. And, um, you know, so basketball was very big. And I just remember oh, right. being, like, in the old gym and, like, you know, watching these games. And you'd have these, like, really beautiful young cheerleaders, you know, dancing and doing all this stuff. It wasn't, like, super sexual, but, I mean... Mm-hmm. I think back on it and I think about like all the parents were sitting there and like the girls are dancing for them. Like there's something sort of weird about it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. It's true. And it's, it's sort of, I guess sort of post American beauty or something. You can't, you can't sort of forget that element. And it's kind of a shame because there is a wholesomeness to it in part, you know, there is something really kind of beautiful, but especially in a place like Indiana or, you know, where it's, Sort of, it was this thing everyone was doing together, you know, in, the, in its original form, and it was really um, something kind of lovely about it. But, but, but of course, it never was that way. <laughs> you know, it never will be now yeah, because I mean, it is, you know, it's spectacle for consumption. It's a spectacle, and it also it's like a titillation, and it's something. Mm-hmm. For, if there's something about the man or the male female dynamic, I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's there's just something odd about it and I think about it now as a parent and I've said this to my wife before but like if my daughter wants to be a cheerleader I think I'm going to be like I mean I'll let her do just about anything but I would feel Mm -hmm. weird about that a little bit yeah yeah I have to be honest I think I'd be like why don't you why don't you go play something (laughs) (laughs) well you know what it's interesting like the the really good cheerleading squad now they they don't want to cheer for the sports at all they don't do sideline cheer they just cheer at competitions um and they find it really boring to cheer for boys so so 
I thought that was an interesting development that they don't that they're really kind of to them it's a waste of time to to be on the sidelines or to just do the halftime thing. They want to compete against other squads, so it really becomes maybe closer to to you know gymnastics or or something you know a really competitive sport. That said, I wouldn't I don't think I'd want my daughter to do it because she could die. <laughs> you know, well, yeah. stunts, one of my friends, one of my friends in junior high got thrown up and landed on her head and almost was paralyzed. Oh my gosh! Yes. Yeah. She, and she could and she could never do it again, and like it, you know, it was really scary. And I, mean, you know, I was like, what, thirteen years old at the time, so I was like, oh, is she okay? Like, you know. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. you know, hindsight, it was like, holy cow, like that would have been a disaster. Absolutely, and I think we're more used to it now with dealing with football. Of course, football they have helmets and they don't go high in the air either. You know, it's a, yeah. it's a weird dichotomy that we let girls do this. Um, pretty much uncontrolled um and in fact we encourage them to do it uh but it's it but it speaks i think it's interesting about those girls because i do think they're kind of like uh, gladiators in that way and yeah and you, i i interviewed a few of them and one of them which was my favorite she said she was in college now and she had she had damaged her spine terribly in high school doing it and she showed me pictures of it and everything and had to have surgery and she said she'd still be cheering if she could and she hoped to be able to do it next year in college so wow <laughs> yeah well so, but, you um, know it's interesting because it's like uh, we talk i talk about like the the titillating aspects of it and like the, the the weird sexual part of it you know with regard to like sideline cheering and i think that like the movement away from that into like a more of a like you know gladiator type competition mm -hmm. while it comes loaded with all these dangers uh, for the girls is actually maybe like the, the right impulse you know like right. you know what I'm saying it's more of like a, a it's what Barbara Stanwyck would do <laughs> <laughs> but exactly while she was she being would be a cheerleader but while she was cheering she would be smoking that's the only thing <laughs> Oh my God! I think that's the greatest mental picture, <laughs> and I bet she could wield a pom pom like nobody. Knows. I'm thinking like yeah, like a pom pom in one hand and like a cigarette in the other would be the greatest yeah. thing in history. Yeah, and an anklet, you know, like in Double Indemnity. <laughs> so okay, so there's that, and then the other thing that I want to ask you about relative to Dare Me and, and you know the world of it um, is female friendships, mm. and like especially adolescent female friendships. And, you know, just how intense they can be and how, um, you know, the, the fights are just different. I know guys, you know, teenage boys can sometimes fight with one another and guys can have their own conflicts. But, like, I grew up with sisters and I, I sort of have, like, some window into that. And, mm -hmm. you know, you've written an entire book that I think, um, you know, touches upon that and kind of dives into those kinds of uh, psyches and uh, lives like what did you learn about it like have you arrived at any conclusions and uh, what can you tell us <laughs> from my from my anthropological journey that part I absolutely remember and identify with because there is something about, I mean I think it's so in many ways so much healthier and easier for boys because if they have fights they can they can, you know, go out by the bike racks or get it out of their system or you know but you know girls aren't supposed to do I mean sometimes they do that but um there's it. They're really friendships are like they're really like grand romances at that age with all the intensity and the infatuation and the you know I've got to be around you all the time and then the, and then inevitably the betrayal um, and I think it's they're sort of testers for how love is going to go in life um, no matter who they you know choose to take it with and I think it's it's just sort of the testing ground for a lot of the 
a lot of the pain of life to come, um, but without having the sort of skills or tools to know how to deal with it. And, unfortunately, in this sort of peer situation that everyone is in high school where the humiliation is a hundred times greater. Um, you know, and now if you have a, a love affair and it goes badly, you know, as long as you keep your social media to yourself, you, you know, it's a secret. But in high school, of course, everything is exposed. And now, um, for high school students now, even more so. I mean, can you imagine being in high school now? Um, I would be. I thank. I, I literally thank the stars every day that I did not have like a, a camera phone and oh, God. social media when I was like going through adolescence. Because like, think about having all that stuff like on the web somewhere. That would be. Oh I Lord! Mean, talk about mortified. It, it's just. I, well, sometimes when I see even the old snapshots that just I have, I'm horrified. And when I think of what that could mean, and and how quickly. <laughs> you know your reputation can be ruined and how you know and how the shaming can go far beyond your school and go global well no it's um, a, it's funny to think about like for you know right when you said that when you were talking about finding like an old snapshot that, <laughs> yeah. that only you have like what flashed through my mind is like either you or me like finding like a photo like in an album like an actual physical photo mm-hmm. of which there is only one copy and being so humiliated by it that like <laughs> I'm thinking to myself of like putting it in a lockbox and then like taking a boat out into the middle of the ocean. (laughs) I know. Why are we keeping these at all? Right after this, I'm going to go and burn all those. I mean, they could be found at some point or digitized in some fashion. And, you know, I mean, it is. It's just not an age that should be documented, much less you know, disseminate it. Um, but we're going to, we're going to need that for your literary biography. <laughs> right, the bi- what would the biographers do? Like just, I just um, want like a big photo section in the middle of it. Of just like, <laughs> you, with like, you know, bangs and headgear. Oh God. Oh God. The bangs, <laughs> the bangs alone is reason enough to, yes, to do serious burning. But it, it, you know, you don't have relations. I mean, you don't have, I mean, I think this is true with boys too, but I think it's especially true with girls. You don't have friendships like that ever again. Thank God in many ways, because your world is so small. Um, and, you know, and then it ends. Um, and then that's sort of, you figured stuff out when you're done, you know, when you're through it. But those, those friendships can be just so, so, so damaging and so destructive. Um, well, and I think, like, it's interesting to hear you say that it's, like, kind of a testing ground for how love might go and how, like, there's an intimate, like, it's almost like the, it's like you're play acting intimacy mm-hmm. with another girl, regardless of whether or not you're into girls, you right. know, like, right. sexually. Like, and I think that, you know, I think women have, generally speaking, like a more sophisticated emotional understanding or just like a more sophisticated emotional world in a lot of ways, you know, like, mm-hmm. like relationship-wise anyways. Like I think back on my high school buddies and like, you know, there was some of that. And you know what? The, like a movie that I absolutely love is super bad, yeah. uh, which yep. I think is like just like. I don't know. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. I love that movie. And I think it's funny because it sort of plays on that um, gender reversal where you have guys like sort of being like, (laughs) (laughs) like they're like in love, you know, and like they're going to separate and it's like this horrible thing. And that resonated, you know, and I kind of think that there's some of that with guys, but with girls, it seems a lot more intense. And I think it's just a different kind of friendship. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, it's just, I think it is, it is the same, yeah, but it can enact itself in different ways, and, and I think, with, you know, I think there's still some boys at that age, maybe still, unless they're playing sports, you know, are a little uncomfortable being physical with each other when we girls are not, and so that, that kind of, it becomes a physical intimacy, too, no matter what you're doing, you know, girls are always all over each other at that age, and, and I think that that sort of also makes it more, it's totally acceptable, and in fact, encouraged sometimes for them to be so, so there's that adds to this sort of hyper intensity of it and and in girls that age you know they don't have a lot of outlets to as we were saying to be angry too so when they get angry at each other it can take all kinds of you know terrifying and screwed up forms um for that reason too you know a lot of this sort of how can i humiliate someone um and so that that makes everything feel bigger too and and now you know you know in high school you know at the end of the day if i had a bad day in a fight with a friend i could go home and not have to think about it necessarily till the next day but now your school is with you always because it's on your phone it's on your computer Uh, you know okay i hate it I hate it. It, is. it was better I'm sorry when you, for your daughter. Well, yeah, it was better when you could disconnect. It was better. Yeah. I don't care what anyone says. Like I yeah. don't. Like I have such. I mean, I, there are certain conveniences that my phone affords me that I appreciate. But mm-hmm. uh, if they were taken away from me tomorrow, I would survive. And yeah. I would say like seventy-five percent of it bugs the shit out of me. And I just, you yeah. know, I, it's like constantly people texting me. (laughs) I don't know. You know, I I might, I might go old school at some point and like have like a full revolt, but it feels hard to do. I know. I fantasize about that a lot because I I do think some ways my phone is like this living thing, this this sort of enemy. It's like an alien being. It's this enemy of mine. (laughs) I, you know, but you know, we, maybe we bitch too much. Like it's like, you know, you can like talk to it now and it'll tell you where to go. And I don't know. There's certain, there's certain aspects of it that are magical. So I don't want to be I like, like Instagram. <laughs> there you go. Um, okay. So like just to kind of finish out the, the adolescent girl thing and you know, what you learn, because you know, in writing this book, you must have, you, you talked about watching YouTube videos. You talked about actually interviewing cheerleaders. So you did some actual physical on the ground research mm-hmm. and then you dove back into this world. And, you know, I don't know how good your memory is or how, you know, alive that time of your life remains to you. But like for me, so much is lost. Like my mm-hmm. memory is just increasingly bad. And, uh, I don't know, I can't remember anything or, or maybe I choose to block it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So when you go back into this stuff and suddenly you're talking to cheerleaders and you're, you know, I don't know if you went back to your old high school or you did anything weird like that, but um, what came up for you? Like, what did you learn about yourself? Like, do you, did you find yourself remembering things and being like, oh, my God, I did this? And Yes. No, definitely. And I, I would have said the same thing you said. I would have thought, I don't remember any of that. I blocked it all out. I, you know, I... Um, but, but once you start to open that door, so don't open the door, <laughs> um, you find it all comes flooding back. And I, I, you know, I sort of have this memory of like the note, this is, you know, we would, girls would write notes to each other, you know, and they would be pages long, like endless, you know, and, you know, we would talk for like two hours on the phone at the end of the day. I started to remember all this stuff about, you know, what were we talking about? What were in these notes? You know, what, what could we have possibly said to someone who I would see like 16 times in a day, but there and was like, like now, yeah, nowadays, like I can barely like come up with like a text message to my best friend. I know. <laughs> I know. And I just, and I can't imagine if I kept any of those notes 
notes looking at them. That would be too mortifying. But I definitely remembered passing these long multi-page, you know, line rule notebook pages, notes, you know, to my friends, um, you know, throughout the day for updates, you know, updates on the important issue with Victor in civics class or what do you say, you know, I don't know what it would even be, but that kind of compulsiveness and that sort of hunger um, and that sort of needing to be engaged and, and needing to sort of, you know, always be checking everything and always be, you know, and the other part that I had forgotten about was how I have no idea what was going on with my parents during those years at all. It's like they didn't exist. The, I, I did talk to them about that. Like, oh, you went, my mom went back to college when I was in high school. I have no memory of it at all. <laughs> I'm going to classes. I don't remember that. You know, because I, I, you know, and then that sort of became part of the book that parents don't even exist because at that age, for a lot of teenagers, you know, really all they only exist to occasionally if if you can't get a ride home. You know, oh, that's God. really it. That's just heartbreaking because my daughter's like three right now. <laughs> oh, but but my you know, my relationship is very good with her now because of that. I was not the you know we were not in each other's face. You know, it wasn't that kind of thing. You know, they. Right, right. Um, they respected my space. <laughs> and, and, you know, I guess you got to. It's like yeah. it's, it's a weird ritual, you know. Like the, in adolescence, you're sort of preparing to leave the nest, so you need to like practice it, just like you were kind of talking about with respect to, you know, rehearsing love relationships or whatever mm-hmm. it is. You know, there's there's all that stuff, and it sort of makes sense to me. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, with regard to the actual writing itself, and you mentioned earlier that you became like once you sort of got a taste of it and you got a little luck with regard to the agent, you couldn't quit and it became this compulsion with you. So, uh, how do you work now? Like, are you an everyday writer? Are you like nonstop, like super pro? It seems like you're pretty prolific. Yeah, I write, I, I'm pretty much, I'm not, I write every day now. I, 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 you know, I, I have to, I, but that doesn't mean I'm actually writing all, you know, as I'm sure you know, you know, it's, I have to be in the head of a book all the time, um, you know, for the for at least most of the day, or I lose the book, um, I lose the feeling of the book. So it's this awful itch when when I'm away from it. Um, so I can't say I enjoy writing at all. I <laughs> I find it really miserable, but I I absolutely love finishing for the day or having written or so. It's sort of I mean it is a little it's something a little drug like about it. You know, you just sort of craving that feeling that will come if you know if I put this time in then I'll get that feeling of relief after and then I won't have to do it again until tomorrow or something so that I guess that's the compulsive aspect of it okay that makes me feel good because I'm like that and like every time mm-hmm. I talk to a writer and, and it does happen where they're just like I just love to write and I'm <laughs> I'm always sitting there going, Jesus, I'm such a dysfunctional mess. Like, what I is know. <laughs> I don't know if they're lying. I don't know if there's something I'm missing. I don't know what could be enjoyable about it. <laughs> well, I've thought a lot about this, and it's not even with respect to writing alone. But, like, you know, I, you know, I, I consider myself a relatively... I don't know. I can hear, like, people, like, friends of mine laughing now. But I consider myself relatively well-adjusted. Mm-hmm. I'm decently happy enough but like i don't like to overstate those kinds of things and mm-hmm. you know it, life is hard and i don't like to deny that and I, i'm trying really hard to be honest with myself and i think sometimes part of that can lead me to maybe indulge negative feelings because i'm like this is real or you, mm-hmm. do you know what i'm saying it's hard for yeah. me to, it's hard for me to navigate and yet i have friends who i think might be blessed like neurochemically with like just a sunnier predisposition and sometimes uh, I find myself dealing with people, whether it's writers or whether it's just friends, 
who, if you, you happen to be melancholy or you happen to be talking about something that's not necessarily super sunny, they respond to your admission or your confession with like extreme happiness. <laughs> and, and what I think about it is that I feel like, I ha- like some people are like almost competitively happy. And my feeling, and, and I think this is actually kind of like uh, tying together nicely now, there's a through line with what we've talked about, is mm-hmm. that I think that there's a lot of anger underlying that surface level happiness. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. when someone is like competitively happy, and it's like, you know, because I've had situations where I'm like, you know, something legitimately shitty has happened to me. And I've like told a friend because, you know, that's what you're supposed to do, right? Like, right. What are you, you're not supposed to bury all this stuff. It's not healthy. And they're your friends. And that's who you're supposed to turn to. And I tell my friend, like, you know, X happened to me and it was really authentically shitty. And then, like, they respond by texting me, like, pictures of their kids. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, God. you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. wait, a, wait a minute. And I, I, don't, I don't think, I think, like, in their defense, they might not know quite how to handle it. Or maybe they're, like, pissed off that, like. I think that's very aggressive. <laughs> right. It's like, fuck you for being unhappy. And it's yeah. Like, I don't know. And reminding me of my secret unhappiness. That's right. what I think it is. Yes. It's like it's weird psychologically to untangle all that. But, um, you know, at the same time, like I, I kind of admire people, writers and just people generally who are like like they work really hard at like being happy and like taking a positive attitude. Like I could take a lesson from that. Like I need to have a better attitude a lot of the time. Yeah. Do you feel no, that I'm, way? I do. I do because I, I don't want to, you know, it's sort of like, wow, you're getting to do the thing you want. You spend a lot of time doing it. You spend a lot of time getting to talk to people about books because you do it and you love books more than anything. What is there to complain about, you know? Right. And so it's sort of like you have to sort of, you know, secretly <laughs> or you'll find your little, you know, little group of, you know, fellow you know, bleak bleakers <laughs> and then sort of talk about it together. But see, it's, uh, it's more bleak to me to be like fake nice or fake hat. I fucking hate that. Like, yeah, I don't want to be like, like Debbie Downer. Um, but I just, I just want to be real in the moment or I don't know. Yeah. I think that's energizing though. I think it's different than Debbie Downer. Debbie Downer is, Oh, everything's so hard. I don't want to do anything. But I think there's something really energetic about talking about Jesus, this is hard. What do I, God, this, this page sucks. Like what, you know, I feel like there's something really kind of, you know, like, and then you talk about it together and you sort of mobilize in this kind of witchy fashion (laughs) energy, you know, this kind of dark energy can kind of crackle from that. And that, you know, I think, you know, from dark places, you know, I guess maybe that's where I think the most creativity comes from. Well, let's hope, right? Yes, please. <laughs> so, uh, dare me. Uh, the film, uh, the film rights have what been optioned? Is that how you mm-hmm. phrase it? And so, is exactly. this is this happening? Is this is this a go, or has it just been optioned? It's no, no. Well, it's a go for now. You know how you you know you know out there. I I wrote the script for it, and we have a director now. So you know, fingers crossed. Well, wait. Um, okay. So wait. You wrote this. You you adapted your own book. Yeah. That, that's a little bit unusual. It was very awful. <laughs> no, it was, it was a very difficult experience. But really interesting. Um, it, was, uh, it was, uh, it was, you know, you have to, you know, breaking apart your book and putting together something different it felt really, I'd never reread any of my own books before. So right. the whole process was new and strange. Um, but, but, I'll, but it's something that you're sort of, you've been going, you know, you've been going back to your childhood. Like this is something you've sort of been preparing for your whole life. It seems like. I had to seize the chance when I had it because of that. You know, I I always think when I write, I think 
like a movie. Um, I think I don't I mean I don't think this is going to be a movie, but I think about it like movies because that's how I guess I first learned story structure. So, um, so it, I had to try it for sure. Um, so, can you tell me who the director is? Um, uh, the director is a Michael Susi who did Grey Gardens. Did okay. you see the HBO? Movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. Uh, do you have any? Is anyone attached to Star? They're well. They're they've uh, right now. They're talking. Though, I mean, this could change by the time I get off the phone um, with Natalie Portman for the coach, and they're talking to different actresses about the young girls. But it's all sort of, yeah. you know. Um, it's not it real. It's, it's not real. Until, it's not real until it's real. You know? Exactly. And I have been told you not even until the cameras actually start rolling. <laughs> so, yeah. so they don't even like to give me updates because I'm such a movie geek. I, you know, I want to hear everything. Um, well, so I, I try to steer, you know, it's probably for my own sanity. Well, I will keep my fingers crossed for you. And uh, this has been really fun. I've enjoyed talking with you and I congratulate you on the uh, paperback release and on all of your success. And hopefully, uh, you know, I, I wish for you that you get the experience of getting to like walk down the red carpet at the the movie <laughs> premiere of your own book because that would seem like a full circle experience. Indeed, Barbara Stanwyck. Right. <laughs> just pick pick up smoking for that night only. I want you. That's just, right. I want you out there, just you know, rocking it. So uh, excellent. C- congratulations to you. Fun talking, and best of luck on whatever comes next. Thank you so much. I had a great time. <laughs> Okay, you guys, there you go. That's Megan Abbott. Great uh, talking with her. I really enjoyed that. Go get her novel. It's called Dare Me. It's out in paperback from Reagan Arthur and Back Bay Books on August 27th, 2013. You can find Megan online at MeganAbbott.com. She's on the Twitter where her handle is at Megan E. Abbott, and I believe you can find her on the Facebook too. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And hey, don't forget to go get the app, the free official Other People app. It is available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this podcast. How many times do I have to tell you this? New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. And you can also access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get that. If you have not done so already, the app itself is free. Okay, uh, otherwise, uh, you know, I'm going to stop talking about feminism as much as possible. Sometimes it comes up. It's not necessarily uh, my fault. Sometimes my guests, uh, they might talk about it, and you know what? That's okay. No subject is off limits here, but at the same time, Uh, You know, I don't want to keep beating the same drum. I don't want to seem neurotic or uh, fixated in a weird way, Uh, nor do I want to sound nauseatingly precious and self-conscious on this particular line. I'm just trying to figure my shit out, you know? Please remember uh, that Anthony Trollope worked for the British Post Office for 33 years and that Buster Keaton died in Woodland Hills, California. That is it for now. Thanks for being here, you guys. Thanks to Megan Abbott. Go get her book. The paperback uh, paperback drops on August 27th. I'm just going to keep repeating that until you go pre-order it. Otherwise, I will be back in just a few days with another uh, show, another writerly person, another episode, another conversation about uh, non-gender-related issues. I'm trying. Do you realize that? I'm trying to offer you uh, variety 
and uh, quality and uh, 